Welcome to Living Well with Dr. Peg, where psychologist Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark explores a variety of mental health, wellness, and safety topics and shares biblically-based psychological strategies for living well and staying safe. Now, here is your host of Living Well with Dr. Peg, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the program. Beautiful Colorado day, but we know we've got listeners all over the country. Thanks for tuning in and streaming at Dr. Peg radio.com. I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. I've got a full house today with my guests. Uh, we've got Dave Keita helping out today. We're taking calls. So if you'd like to call in um, to the show, the number's 303-477-5600. And we are talking about opioid addiction and recovery today. Uh, it's mental, mental Health Awareness Month. May is Mental Health Awareness Month. And um, substance abuse and addiction affect uh, the mental health and well-being of countless in individuals and, and families. And in particular, opioids killed more than 42,000 people in the U.S. in 2016 alone. And to put that in perspective, that's more than the number of people who died from gun-related violence or motor, motor vehicle accidents in the same year. Well, to help us understand the impact of opioid addiction on families and how to get help for a loved one, You'll hear from Lorraine Hoover, who lost her brother Raymond Jr. to opioid addiction, and Matthew Jarvis, an addiction counselor, who was one of Raymond's best friends. But first, uh, we're brought to you by our sponsor, SSI Guardian, who set the new standard in advanced safety education training and has the only evidence-based program of its kind with an accredited CEU. And to learn more about SSI Guardian, you can go to ssiguardian.com. Tell them you heard about them from Dr. Pegg. And if you missed last week's episode or any episode of Living Well with Dr. Pegg, you can go to the program archives at drpegradio.com. I'm also celebrating the 10th anniversary of my book, Do Something Different for a Change. If you'd like to pick up a copy, you can go to drpegradio.com and click on books. Well, it's Mental Health Awareness Month, and today we're talking about opioid addiction and recovery. And to help us to understand this important topic, my guests today are Lorraine Hoover and Matthew Jarvis. And Lorraine and Matthew have both been on the show before. And uh, Lorraine lost her baby brother, Raymond Roundtree Jr., to an opioid overdose about a year ago. And uh, in his memory, Lorraine founded the Raymond Roundtree Jr. Foundation, which is a Colorado nonprofit organization dedicated to providing affordable transitional and sustainable wraparound services to those individuals and family members impacted by the consequences of addictive drug use. And joining Lorraine today is Matthew Jarvis, who's a licensed addiction, addictions counselor, who's been working in the mental health field since 2004 and is active in the recovery community as an advocate for mental health services and reducing social stigma. Lorraine Hoover and Matthew Jarvis, thanks so much for being back with me today. Welcome back to the program. Wonderful. Thanks, Peggy, for having us again. We're excited to be here. Thank you so much. Same here. I'm really glad to be back and, and spreading this message. So thank you. Yeah, it's such an important topic. It's getting a lot of headlines uh, in recent years. It's very personal to you. It's not just a headline, not just a news story. Uh, Lorraine, you lost your baby brother, and Matthew Raymond was one of your very good friends from childhood. Um, I noted in the introduction that opioids killed more than 42,000 people in the U.S. in 2016 alone. 
um, just such an incredible number, and it's not just a number, it's very personal to you all. Uh, on May 7th, Mrs. Trump launched her Be Best uh, campaign that's focused on the well-being of children, and in particular, one of the pillars of the campaign is opioid abuse, and so we're getting, again, some renewed national attention. Mr. Trump is also talking about stopping opioid abuse, warning people about the risks of opioids and providing evidence-based treatment, the importance of evidence-based treatment and recovery support services for people already struggling with addiction. So again, it's in the news. Hopefully there'll be some resources, not just rhetoric, uh, behind that. But um, Matthew, can you kind of give us an overview uh, of what are opioids? We're hearing that term, but what really are they? And, and what is, how does it affect our, our um, body? Why are opioids so deadly? Well, they, they really affect pain receptors. And I think that they, um, they you know, help block pain. But what makes them deadly is the dependence. And people um, typically begin using them for pain management, um, even chronic pain and develop a dependence or a tolerance. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what we've seen as far as this epidemic get out of control, is these high-powered opioids that, and opiates that um, are you know, basically synthetic. Mm -hmm. And once a dependence is, is developed, um, then all sorts of other problems start to occur. And a person will um, be using opiates not only to deal with their pain, but to deal with the withdrawal symptoms. And so um, if the prescription opiates aren't available or ready or available, um, you know, the withdrawal, what they call, you know, being dope sick, mm. it can be so intense that we'll, people will seek other means such as like street drugs. Okay. Um, and then obviously that opens up all sorts of dangers as well. Right. The primary danger is overdose. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's what we're seeing. So... Yeah. So one thing that I read is that uh, roughly 21 to 29 percent of patients who are prescribed opioids for chronic pain misuse them. And so how, how does that happen? It, it's uh, someone maybe say takes a fall, falls off a, a ladder, they're a construction worker or in a car accident. Denver's got, getting kind of crazy out there with the traffic. And so they very legitimately are prescribed uh, a painkiller. Um, but then they start misusing it. How, do, how does that really happen? They're trying to avoid the withdrawal? Is that, is that what happens? Well, I think that the misuse actually starts with some uh, errors in thought. And if behavioral health components aren't added to, say, an opiate prescription, then a person could very easily make an error and say, okay, well, I'm not actually in pain right now, but I'm having trouble sleeping. Mm. Or this, this uh, disturbing thing is happening, and they use the opiates for something other than what they were prescribed, and then they become uh, solutions to problems. Okay. So, so, so the, the pain medication is helping with the pain, but one of the side effects might be difficulty sleeping or any other number of um, symptoms, and so the person continues taking the painkiller for those side effects. Um, well, essentially, except that the, the, you know, they're so powerfully effective that the person may believe, okay, this worked for this uh -huh. situation so now i'm in pain or i'm having these other problems and i'm going to use them for this too mm -hmm. and that i mean that's kind of across the board with with addiction is they work in this 
you know, singular event, mm -hmm. and then per the person starts to use them for other stressors in life, mm -hmm. and then they become a primary coping right. mechanism. So the so. solution becomes the problem. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Uh, another stat that I read uh, is an estimated four to six percent who misuse prescription opioids will transition to heroin, and about eighty percent of people who use heroin first misused prescription opioids. Yes, for sure. There's definitely a correlation, and we see that in treatment. Um, like I said, when the prescription meds are not available, uh, typically folks will turn to, to like street drugs, and heroin's the most available one. And, um, you know, heroin's not regulated by the government or anything like that. So a lot of times you don't know what you're getting. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's like word on the street. Right. And, yeah, so you talked earlier about overdose being one of the biggest risks. And so there, there's a drug out there that's being encouraged for first responders. Mm -hmm. And even in some states, it's, it's available over the counter without a prescription. Um, that's, uh, see if I can pronounce this, uh, nal naloxone? Naloxone, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or Narcan. And that's, Narcan, uh, it's yeah. a very important um, aid out there. And so a lot of first responders and other mental health professionals are being trained to use this because it literally saves lives when people mm -hmm. are overdosing. And so, um, you know, it's kind of like a harm reduction. There'll be people that have active addictions that carry this stuff around and they've done it, you know, with each other. And um, most first responders, I've been trained how to use it. So I think it's an effective, uh, you know, tool sort of to immediately save right. someone's life. Obviously, there's, it doesn't, um, stop the addiction right right, right. right. so it's a life-saving intervention but people are carrying it around who have active addictions um as kind of a solution to not dying right. but it's not helping with the addiction at all yeah. yeah it's like carrying around an EpiPen. yeah yeah and so lorraine how 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 significant would that have been had your brother been able to take narcan yeah uh, he died of an opioid overdose um Yes, he did. Yeah. And I think um, he was alone. And that's another, mm -hmm. you know, statistic that um, most users or those that are addicted um, isolate themselves. And so um, he isolated himself at his home and um, his phone was not working. And so, you know, then again, back to the resistance and the tolerance, he had built up a tolerance and was, uh, it was fentanyl that he was using, mm -hmm. which was also combined with cocaine. And he's trying to relive that initial high over and over. So had he had that um, drug, he would still be here. A lot of things you think about that everything happens for a reason, right? And um, the goal is how to avoid that. And my thought would have been to catch it early on because he went into a program, um, a, a lock-in uh, to get detoxed for six months and he needed to go back to work. So if you can imagine, he has a family, he goes, he's in lockdown for six months. Um, so he's had no income. He had his own business. So he has to go back to work. He did not have the funds to go out and move to that next level of an intensive outpatient program, which could have saved his life in the sense of truly being healed from the actual um, addiction. Right. 
Right. And that wasn't available to him. One, financially, it wasn't, and there was no resources that he was able to tap into. So with that, that's what springboards, I think, my mission through this is to make that available um, to those that are in a financial process that they can't afford to take that next step to ensure that they understand this is a disease mm-hmm. and that they're getting treated and they're choosing to live it out healthy right. um, by utilizing the resources that are out there. And so in testimony to that, if I may, uh, Matthew is celebrating 15 years of sobriety. And um, that in itself shows you that you can make it through if tools are there and resources are there. And that's my goal is to, you know, make sure that other families don't have to suffer the loss and others that are addicted have resources and know that they're there, even if they don't have the finances for them. Yes. And so we're going to unpack a lot of what you're talking about today and really dig in a little deeper and take a look at um, those wraparound services and access to services and a whole continuum of care is really what you're talking about is um, from having a, um, a Narcan, you know, nasal spray if you're about to overdose to all the way to being 15 years sober and what kinds of um, support services and treatment and intervention is, is helpful to, to be able to say, yeah, 15 years clean and sober. So let's let's back up a little bit. You know, there's there's a myth out there that addiction is a moral failing, like something's wrong with you, you know, morally. You're a weak person. You're a bad person. But that's really a myth. Um, the science says that this is a true uh, brain disorder, that yeah. there are certain risk factors that make some people more vulnerable. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's more and more evidence coming out saying that it's not Uh, a moral issue. However, there's still a lot of stigma, not just in mainstream cultures, but, um, you know, minority cultures and the idea that it's a choice, that it's willpower, that there's something wrong, uh, you know, morally with the person. And that's just not true. Um, We have pretty substantial evidence that the the brain begins to function differently once the dependence is developed. And it's um, very, very uh, difficult for somebody to just cease Mm -hmm. uh, using uh, despite you know, catastrophic things going on in their lives, you may think, why does this person keep keep doing this? Yeah. And so that's one of the markers for our, uh, you know, criteria for the diagnosis, which is ongoing use despite negative consequences. And so, um, so I mean, it's almost like it's not natural to continue right. this behavior. Right, it, right. It's, it's contrary to um, our instincts. Mm-hmm. And so... So yeah, I mean, we support that. It's it's be very difficult for somebody to to recover from this without help. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and we're seeing you know children starting at younger and younger ages. Um, even the legalization of marijuana, I think, is going to reduce the stigma around drug use and drug experimentation. And so someone at a very young age who is just experimenting, doing it socially, but who might be at risk for developing an addiction because of perhaps a family history and genetic links or, uh, you know, if there is a brain, you know, brain uh, issue sure. that, that makes people vulnerable, uh, how, how important is it to get to people at a young age? I don't know, you know, was your brother very young when he first started using substances? Um, Dr. Pegg, he, he was. And those are things that if I can speak out to parents that 
you may think that you're just, you know, smoking marijuana to relax after a long day. Um, you're setting uh, a behavior and an example. And, and common sense says we know that, you know, they follow, our children follow and watch. But you think sometimes after they're in bed, you've shut the door. And unbeknownst to me and through this process over the last year, um, I've uncovered that um, my brother was, you know, sneaking alcohol and uh, drugs from, you know, parties or gatherings where that was taking place. So this was back in the 70s. So you can imagine it was very free for all. So with that said, I think, yes, at a young age, you can start and it can become an issue depending on the person's um, personality of being either an addictive personality or um, a person. There's some people that can make it through and there's some that have different drivers, I guess, for the lack of a medical term. <laughs> And so, um, uh, Matthew, the, the, there are those risk factors that are, that are identifiable that parents would be, um, it'd be a good idea for parents to educate themselves in terms of um, what those factors are, what the signs are of early, even just drug experimentation, even before there's a problem. What are the signs and what are appropriate interventions? How do you talk to your kids about that? Well, I think the, what's most important is to not come in with a punitive um, approach to, and that's kind of what was going on with me when I was a kid in the, mm. in the 70s. And actually, I did a conference recently, and that's the same. I heard from young people saying, you know, when I go to my parents with uh, issues, depression, anxiety, um, they get mad at me. Mm. And, they, and they have their own stress and their own problems. So it, it does, it is an issue. And I think that education is a, um, a big part of it. Yeah. Is, Absolutely. Well, we'll continue talking about what, what we can do about... Sure. Um, addressing this with young people and if someone is already in the throes of an addiction there is help there is hope i'm speaking with lorraine hoover and matthew jarvis and we're talking about opioid addiction and recovery if you'd like to join the conversation or ask a question you can give us a call at 303-477-5600 we're going to take a break but when we come back we're going to let's talk about fentanyl because that's that's out there we're seeing that in the headlines as well stay with us we'll be right back Threats at our schools and workplace continue at an alarming rate and require an innovative approach to overall institutional safety. A 21st century safe school needs the right training, the right equipment, and the correct action plan to achieve a future-ready, safe learning environment. SSI Guardian's comprehensive evidence-based solutions and Tier 1 Security Consulting is the only active shooter training in America with an accredited CEU. Don't trust your safety to just anyone. SSI Guardian is the only choice. Visit us at SSIGuardian.com. What if a psychologist with years of experience wrote a book revealing secrets that therapists know but usually don't share? And what if that book provided effective strategies for experiencing lasting change? That's exactly what you get with Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark's book, Do Something Different for a Change, an insider's guide to what your therapist knows but may not tell you. Celebrating 10 years in print, this self-help classic shares critical insights to help you understand and overcome the three common barriers to change, heal your emotional pain and emptiness, and strengthen your connection to your true self and others. In the easy-to-understand, down-to-earth style she's known for, Dr. Pegg clearly communicates fundamental principles and strategies for change and personal transformation. Read, do, 
something different for a change today and have a better tomorrow. Go to drpegradio.com books to purchase your copy today. Studies show that safety greatly impacts student learning and a teacher's ability to do what they do best. Be it broken furniture, a leaking roof, or more serious threat of violence, the 21st Century Safe School by School Specialty addresses school safety from the emotional, social, and physical perspective. Don't wait another moment. Call 877-878-5800 or visit SSIGuardian.com. All right, welcome back, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Living Well with Dr. Peg. I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark, and we are live on 560 AM, KLZ, and you can also stream online at drpegradio.com. And we're also Facebook Live through Lorraine Hoover's uh, site. <laughs> so thanks, Lorraine, for doing that. Um, my guests are Lorraine Hoover and addictions licensed addictions counselor Matthew Jarvis. And Lorraine lost her baby brother Raymond to an opioid overdose and Matthew's been working in the field of addictions and recovery for many years. Uh, thanks so much both of you for being with me today, Lorraine and Matthew. Now how can listeners get in touch with you and learn more about your foundation and we'll talk more about the foundation as we go through the show today, but Lorraine, how can they reach out to you? Wonderful, thank you. Um, you can go to our website, which is um, sosrrjrfoundation.org, and um, we're also on Facebook, and um, you can also email us at info at sosrrjrfoundation.org. And we're trying to be more public um, and speaking out, and we do have a scholarship that's coming, so feel free to keep in touch with the website. Okay, great, and we'll talk more about that in our last segment. So listeners, make sure you stay with us for the whole hour. And Matthew Jarvis, how can listeners reach out to you? Um, well, you can go to my website at denveraddictionhelp.com. Great That's, name. Uh, <laughs> denveraddictionhelp.com, and there's a lot of information about uh, my practice and what I do. I've recently resigned my position as a clinical manager at, a, um, at the University of Colorado Hospital facility so I could focus on direct care. And so I do provide addiction treatment services and counseling and therapy for families um, consultation and, and whatnot. And so uh, you can also see me at Courage to Change Counseling on Facebook. Okay. Uh, Courage to Change Counseling Services. So. Okay, excellent. Yeah. And so I'll have some links to you all um, after the show uh, airs, and we'll have a recording of this episode as well. If uh, listeners, you or a family member, are struggling with an addiction, you can share this episode with them and reach out to Matthew Jarvis at Denver Addiction Help. Dot com. And again, if you'd like to join our conversation today or ask Lorraine or Matthew a question about opioid addiction, you can give us a call, 303-477-5600. So let's talk about um, fentanyl. That's another thing that's in the headlines. We know that the current drug addiction crisis began in rural America, um, but it's quickly spreading to urban areas and into, in particular, the African-American population in cities across the country. And that's a particular concern of ours as African-Americans. And um, we know overall opioid overdose deaths are increasing in certain communities. And in part, the culprit is fentanyl. And that's the same drug that killed Prince. They found that in Prince's system. Tom Petty, I understand also, um, uh, Fentanyl was a culprit. So talk about that, Matthew, of how 
this addiction is um, really inescapable. It's in you know rural America, urban centers. Um, all backgrounds are vulnerable and uh, could possibly become addicted, overdose, or wreak havoc in their lives. So talk about that, how this is the changing the face of addiction. Well, sure, and I think that um, it's true that it is reaching multiple populations and it's devastating the African-American community as well. And in some instances, science is not our friend in terms of fentanyl is a, a high-powered synthetic opiate that is effective for, for pain and mm -hmm. cancer treatments and whatnot. But when it's just used as um, f not for those reasons, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's powerfully addictive. Right. And it's, go ahead. And so we were talking about how uh, uh, opioid use for pain is often a gateway into heroin addiction. 80% of heroin users first started with prescribed opiates. Right. Right. But the, this thing called fentanyl is so much more potent than heroin. I read that it's up to 100 times more potent than morphine and many times more potent than heroin. It's a powerful synthetic that's often laced in heroin and other street drugs. And I saw an image, you probably have seen it, of a vial that had maybe half a teaspoon of heroin in it, heroin in it yeah. and it said this would kill you. And then it's had a few sprinkles of fentanyl in, this, in another similarly sized vial, and it said, this will kill you. And it was like a handful of sprinkles of dust will kill you, even if you accidentally breathe it in. That's how powerful fentanyl is. But it's made its way into the streets, yeah. and people are dying from it. Yes, it's highly effective, and it's made its way into the, in the streets. And I think that um, you know, we're seeing the same thing with Basically, technology improves the potency of these drugs. We mm -hmm. see the same thing with marijuana. We're seeing all sorts of medical issues with people that are using marijuana chronically, this high-powered um, mm -hmm. marijuana that it's out there now. They're having all sorts of health problems. It's the same thing with fentanyl. And, um, you, you know, it's, it's, it was engineered, I think, for with the intention of doing good and helping people work through pain, and it actually does help with that. Um, but now we're seeing this these side effects, I would say, that are uh, killing people. Yeah, so. yeah. And you said, uh, Lorraine, your brother um, was using fentanyl or was ex consumed fentanyl. Yes, he was. He was using it. So his, um, he would be labeled like the, the state's trying to and the government trying to come out with processes that a doctor has to qualify a patient before they give them, you know, um, a prescription. And he could have been diagnosed then that he was, you know, had an addictive um, and a, a history of drug abuse. So once he did hurt his back and they gave that to him, it, it was, again, another uh, feeling of addiction to get the neurons going. So then he became addicted to it um, and he was using the um, application that you would put on your skin initially was prescribed where you can it goes directly through your skin um, you know by being a, thank you and um, and that's where it started and then because it is a business in the streets um, somebody that you know would have a, a chronic issue would resell it um, on the streets and then you know he was basically crumbling it and snorting it and so that became his way of of coping and it became a way of being able to make it through the next day eventually because your body needs it to function um, as Matt had mentioned earlier 
it basically changes your, your thought process and your mind and those neurons, and they're looking for a way to refunction. And so that's why it's craving that. Right. And so building a tolerance, going through withdrawal, needing yeah. more and more to get the same result initially, but over time, it, it never, you need more and more to get even a percentage of that original high or feeling or relief that you got previously. True. And I, I think if we look at addictive disorders as a chronic health condition, um, in, in Raymond's case, um, this treatment would have really helped at this mm -hmm. time because people, people that are in recovery from addictive disorders and, um, are vulnerable to medical like surgeries and things like mm -hmm. that. And so, um, if he would have had the right education and the support around him, uh, you know, I'm saying if, uh, that may have, uh, increased his chances of getting through that, uh, episode safely. Um, being in recovery for 15 years, I have seen many people, um, have robust recoveries, but not be well-informed or well-supported around a medical condition or a surgery, and that that's, they're gone. They're wow. back, you know, they've yeah. relapsed. Yeah, so, and yeah. so educating the medical profession as well, and perhaps regulating uh, those prescriptions and, and requiring certain kinds of patient education before a certain kind of prescription is written sure. uh, would be so important. Uh, and, and again, when it's being sold on the street, you know, you may have legitimately been introduced to this drug and then, you know, spiral into, you know, even selling it on the street. People don't know what they're getting on the street, that um, it's hard to regulate or even be aware of the potency of street drugs and fentanyl being thrown into the mix is really just devastating. Well, just quickly, something really scary. I saw a net, uh, documentary on Netflix uh, called Dope, and the this was in Baltimore, I believe, but I'm guessing it's in other cities, is that people on the street would hear about overdoses. And that, knowing that the person died, actually increased the... the um, uh, the the want for that mm. dealer, so the 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 wow. perception is that oh that's really good stuff because the person died so we need to not run away from the oh dealer gosh. but run yeah. towards him. And yeah, so what so. you're talking about, Lorraine, your thought processes are just um, just distorted now from the addiction, not just the physical um, changes to your brain, but now you know that's going to affect your choices and clear thinking. Um, scary. So. So we know that the demographics are important. When we see um, the overall all opioid overdose deaths among black men between the ages of 40 and 69 has increased 245% from 2014 to 2017. Why would knowing demographics be important? Would, are there different strategies depending on the communities? Because here in rural America, what I know about mental health uh, uh, mental health treatment in rural areas is it's almost non-existent, depending right. on what state you're in. You're, you're going to be hard-pressed to get to a local community mental health center. Uh, so there are different needs in a rural community compared to an urban community and different demographics of people. Um, what, what kinds of things do we need to be aware of in terms of treating different um, populations? Well, I mean, that's a great question. And just I had the uh, privilege of presenting at the uh, Black Education Conference of the University of Colorado just the other day. And one of the salient themes that came out was uh, the stigma amongst African-Americans just to seek treatment, period, therapy, counseling, anything like that. So there's huge barriers within the culture around seeking out professional help. And, and similarly for men, there's a whole national campaign about right. man therapy for men 
uh, as a gender, the same kinds of stigmas and barriers exist too. They do, and it's it's. I think at this point, it's it's deadly. Um, black men have depression, they have PTSD, they have anxiety, and all sorts of other uh, mental health conditions that are you know invisible to mainstream mental health. And then the primary coping mechanism becomes either just be tough and and to, you know be a man or uh, substance substance abuse. Mm -hmm. So. Wow, and you recently returned from a trip uh, visiting Ireland, correct? Yes, and yes. so what's the impact of opioid addiction or addictions in general around the world? Is this a crisis everywhere or is it something unique about America? Well, I think America's kind of the pioneer. I think it's, but I, I'm, I, I don't want to speak to what I don't know, but I'm mm -hmm. guessing that it's pretty bad everywhere. Um, what I saw in Ireland was the stigma that I just talked about. So it's very different over there as far as mental health services. It wasn't seen as a, um, you know, I got the sense that it was seen as you're, you're being weak or, or not able to deal with your problems, more of a moral issue. And so when I was in the AA meetings and the NA meetings, I, I witnessed men that looked like they had depression and PTSD and all sorts of other untreated um, conditions. But the, the stigma is it's either like church or um, AA, mm. and that's going to resolve all these things. So it's it's a uh, global, I would say, issue. Right. So. And AA may be a piece of the puzzle in, when you talk, uh, Lorraine, about wraparound services and continuum of care. That may be a, a part of it, but it, it's not necessarily all of, of the picture. Um, let's talk about um, what you just raised, and I'd be curious, Lorraine, uh, if this applied to your brother. You're talking about the, the uh, coexistence of mental health concerns like depression, anxiety, maybe even schizophrenia, uh, bipolar disorder, um, and, uh, and substance abuse. And so in treating an addiction, there's this whole other area of mental health and, and wellness. Um, how common is it for someone to have an, addic an addiction and also have a mental disorder? Um, I would say it's fairly common. I mean, it's, it's a coping mechanism. And so when we're talking mm -hmm. about children um, and myself, and I'll include myself in this comment that I didn't start learning coping skills, just emotional coping skills, dealing with my anger and my anxiety until there was a crisis and I was in getting mental health services. So, you know, installing and teaching uh, children coping skills, how to deal with difficult emotions and rejection and stuff like that, instead of waiting until they're you know, basically dying to, mm -hmm. oh, by the way, here's these coping styles. And so um, the, the latest study that I looked at was from Dartmouth that one in three people that admit for addiction treatment have some form of PTSD mm. or prior trauma. So we're learning more and more about that. Um, but again, being in the field for almost 15 years, I've seen it. And um, so a lot of people present for, for addiction treatment that do have co-occurring right. issues, for right. sure. And was that a confirmed um, fact for your brother, that he was diagnosed with depression or anxiety? Or uh, what is your sense of how he might have been using substances to cope with perhaps some, an undiagnosed mental health problem? And I think, you know, Matthew actually could probably better answer that. I would say from my, there was nothing in the family because I'll go back to that stereotypical 1970 thinking that, um, you know, God bless my parents. They did the best they could and nothing wrong with them. But that there was you don't deal with that. Your family doesn't go to counseling. Um, I had... Uh, 
dyslexia didn't know till my junior year in college and my mom would try to take me to get help but my dad was like no there's some she's just lazy Mm -hmm. so it's that stereotype that you don't want a stigma that your family's not strong enough to handle their business (laughs) if you will and so I think that that labeled us in our household and more so my brother as the only male the only one carrying the roundtree name all of those stereotypes that you know, a black African-American label as you got to be that strong male to carry it on. And we were from Louisiana, so a mixture of cultures. So there was a lot of that labeling. So I do think there was some um, issues, you know, that could have been taken care of at a younger age had we, you know, had that open door mm-hmm. through cultures being aware and educated right. on how to help. Um, and I think you know, that's important to be educated and open um, to it because it's even a stereotype in the church. You right. go to church, but you don't go to counseling, right? right? right. <laughs> uh, it's so, so culturally responsive interventions, being mindful of different demographics, different cultural norms, really makes all the difference for the treatment. Uh, Matthew, you also uh, alluded to something that's really big in K-12 education today, social-emotional learning and learning self-awareness, self-management, social relationships and, and um, you know, awareness and management of relationships, good decision-making, ethical, responsible choices, uh, there's a place for that to be taught in the schools is what uh, schools have concluded. And so we see how that could lay a foundation of life skills, coping skills, decision-making, yes, yes. self-awareness, self-management, so critically important um, for learning. We're seeing a link to that in safety, school safety, and now even perhaps uh, addiction. Well, I'm speaking with uh, Lorraine Hoover, who lost her baby brother, Raymond Roundtree Jr., and is on a mission now to bring awareness and uh, help to provide services in our community for those suffering from addictions. We also have licensed addictions counselor, Matthew Jarvis. We're talking about opioid addiction and recovery. If you'd like to join the conversation, or ask my guests a question, you can call us at 303-477-5600. And Lorraine is Facebook living from Lorraine Hoover. I think you'll have to friend her first to be able to watch that. Uh, but we're going to take a break, and we'll be back with more insights from my guests on recovering from addiction. Stay with us. We'll be back. Wherever I choose to go, it won't take me far. Schools are increasingly adopting 21st century learning strategies. However, safety largely remains absent from the conversation and fragmented efforts continue allowing for security gaps. Studies show effective learning can only exist when students and teachers feel safe. As the industry leader providing innovative educational solutions for more than 58 years, School Specialty has created the 21st Century Safe School, which aligns next generation learning best practices with proven safety solutions focused on the mental, physical, and emotional well-being of every student, teacher, and school employee. From early childhood solutions to advanced training for teachers and administrators, the 21st Century Safe School is the most complete and comprehensive approach available to schools and universities. As a parent, you have every right to demand that your child is afforded the safest environment. Take action today by calling us at 877-878-5800 and learn more about this innovative approach at SSIGuardian.com. 
Hi, I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Do you ever make changes, but after a few days, weeks, or even months, you slip back into your old behaviors and patterns? If you want something different, you've got to do something different. Yet most people won't do what's required to experience the lasting change they say they want. Why? Because change is hard, it's scary, and it comes at a cost. If you're ready for change, join me for a one-day, do something different for a change, personal transformation retreat. In this intensive yet intimate retreat, you'll learn fundamental principles and strategies for lasting change and transformation and craft a customized plan that you can put into action right away. Contact me today to schedule your own private VIP, do something different for a change, personal transformation retreat. Go to drpegradio.com retreat. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me, and I hope you'll join me at a personal transformation retreat. If you're ready for change, schedule your own private personal transformation retreat or gather together a group of motivated friends. If you're looking for clarity on where you are, where you want to go, and what's holding you back, and you want to learn effective strategies for lasting change, check out my personal transformation retreat. You can go to drpegradio.com and click on Retreat. Well, my guests today are Lorraine Hoover and uh, addictions counselor Matthew Jarvis. And Lorraine lost her brother Raymond to an opioid overdose. And if you'd like to join our conversation about recovery from addiction, you can call us at 303-477-5600. Lorraine and Matthew, thanks again so much for being with me and being transparent about your own journeys and Lorraine, about your loss and, and your passion now to make sure that, um, or to contribute to this not happening to someone else's family. Uh, let's talk about um, family, how this impacts family. Um, how hard is it to maybe see some changes but not quite put your finger on what's going on? Maybe even a family dynamic that's saying, you know what, we're not labeling. You've just got to be strong, suck it up, keep moving forward. Uh, how, how hard was it seeing your brother kind of, um, at some point I'm sure it was pretty obvious that what was going on? Yes, I would say that, um, you know, with um, ADHD out there and that label, which back then we weren't really labeling. It was just that, you know, you had a kid, kids that had a lot of energy, right? So they had to play outside a lot. And we did those things, right? So um, for me, my brother was just really full of energy, right? And he was daring. He would do anything. Um, we had a, a, sh- a, sh- a clothes shoot in our house, and he would go down. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew, oh, my. Matthew remembers remember that. We had one, too. It was pretty small in my house. <laughs> so they made it work, believe oh, me. <laughs> so um, that was kind of an ongoing thing that was explored with him. And, you know, that was, you know, so that's many of the things I don't even know. And, um, and during his passing, several of his friends talked about all of the things that they did and um, many opportunities where their lives could have been taken. Mm -hmm. And so that energy was always there. And I want to say it's energy, but it wasn't um, uh, taken in account of how to focus that energy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's all of us have different, you know, areas of energy. It's just where we focus it, right? And how we address it. And so for 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 me, I'm learning through the process as a family that, you know, you there's a lot of things as me having my own children that I can only have so much influence on. And 
not knowing that each child is different. Mm -hmm. You can't, you don't know it all from one, right? And so each of my kids are very different in their own right. And so I can't do the same thing that I did with the other one. And so I think that's the, that old school mentality has to go away. And that was a part of, well, this is how it was with this child. So it should be the same. It should be the same. And so there's that box, which my brother's personality was too big to stay in. And um, also for me, you know, um, and my sister, she was more in that box. She'd play in that box really fairly where I was off the chain and my brother was off the chain and I say off the chain in a positive sense that we were um, more confident and bold mm -hmm. in our personality and had the opportunity maybe to be more emotional or passionate mm -hmm. or you know could be angry right so all of those things as I said them right that means the same thing right, right. it's just how you label it right. and so I'm learning with my own children that I have to label you know my my oldest son uh, Dasan he would like to debate so I said, you're going to be, a, you know, <laughs> a, a prosecuting yeah, attorney. Yeah, right. That's right. Um, you know, reframe, uh, we call right, that, right? Matthew? Exactly. Um, uh, my, uh, you know, Callie, my daughter, she's uh, more of a nurturer. So you have to nurture her and strengthen her for her to move into her best abilities. Right. You know, so those are just, you know, to name a few mm -hmm. things that I'm learning through this process. So with my brother being young, you know, honest, you know, Dr. Peg, we own, that's what we knew. Right. Mm -hmm. So when you're in it, that's all, you know, so it's normal to you. And it's until you go through some things and and have good counsel and, and good churches that educate you, um, you have to have that full mind, body, soul, and mm -hmm. spirit um, aha moment, if you will, where you're able to see that this isn't normal mm -hmm. and there has to be a better way to treat it opposed to me treating it myself, mm -hmm. right? And so um, doing that in the sense of either turning to your faith or the opposite or negative, which we're seeing more of, is, you know, self-medicating with synthetic or anything that is going to alter your state in a negative way um, can be an issue. And so when I think about um, the family dynamics, the best thing that I can say is to be educated and be aware and also be humble enough to ask for help. And I think that um, that's the key. You know, when you're um, a leader in the community, um, which my family was very influent, you, you, you feel like you have to keep it together. Right. And I, um, I really do pray that as a society, we get out of that as Prince, you know, was so perfect or, you know, anybody that was out there that was affluent, if mm -hmm. you will, um, that they needed help in a different way. But right. because they were in those positions, uh, they felt boxed in. Right. Well, and Prince had access to, you know, the best medical care in, in the country uh, and yet had this private physician, you know, prescribing him this medication and unfortunately led to his demise. And so really uh, an important reason for having this show and even your foundation is to reduce that stigma so that we can, if we are in the throes of an addiction, a person or a family can say, we need help, I need help. Uh, but even taking it back, raising awareness, reducing stigma to even you're bringing up such good um, points of how how children are in the world and how they how they show up and are we labeling them because they don't fit in the box that we've established and so really breaking down that stigma from a from an early age in all aspects of life uh, probably is a good way to um, change the culture and and perhaps prevent this from happening to begin with. 
I agree. And I think um, what I've, I'll give, um, you know, honor where honors due that Overland um, High School out of Cherry Creek um, opened and opened their doors to their health care. They have a health care class and they talk about drugs. And in that class, they talked about opioids mm. and they asked me to come in and speak. Wow. And I think that, you know, um, that really opened my eyes because you could really see one, it's, it's in the school. So that was good that they're talking about it. Um, but two, making sure that as you open that door that we're prepared to help those that may need it. Yes. So there's a lot of, you True. know, rules around that, right? Mm -hmm. Because, um, you know... Because you open the floodgates. You right. raise awareness, and but then there's nothing to catch people. Exactly. And, and so how, how are you helping with that? So with that, um, the opportunity showed itself. And then now in the back door of it, you know, working with the school so that when I come in to speak, that there are hours available for counselors, for kids to come in on their own to get that help or to ask those questions and making that available and then also having the resources, thank God for Matthew, where he's that support. There's been several situations where people have come to me now that I've opened this door and Matthew has been able to bring resources mm -hmm. um, rather quickly and, and change a direction for people's lives and open doors. And so with that, um, I'm thankful and I would encourage anybody that when you have a pain that becomes a passion, mm -hmm. that you are equipped uh, to be able to have the expertise right. of others. And I'm thankful for Matthew because he's not only a counselor, but he's lived it and he's right. went through it. And it, what better of a person to help others because he can say that he's walked through right. it. Absolutely. And so Lorraine is talking about Matthew Jarvis, licensed addictions counselor. And you're in private practice now, Matthew. Uh, folks can learn about your work at denveraddictionhelp.com. And so talk about what kinds of um, help is available. Um, we talked about AA and NA, Narcotics Anonymous, uh, has, a, uh, has a role to play in that kind of treatment. We hear about 28-day programs, sure. and my insurance will only cover, you know, five days, but it's a 28-day program. Um, there's transitional care that you referenced, Lorraine, that if your brother had had something to kind of sustain him. So talk about what's available and, and what that really looks like day to day for an individual uh, or a loved one who's thinking about, I need to get some help. Well, I mean, it's important to be assessed. I mean, there's mm -hmm. different levels of care and, 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 you know, what we talked about with the continuum. And so talking to a professional like myself, um, just to get some sense of the severity, what's necessary, um, you know, a trusted provider, even a, a doctor or a PCP could help with that to to give you or the family some information about what the next steps are. I mean, I think the sort of rule of thumb is if you it seems like something's off or wrong, then it probably is. Mm -hmm. And so to sort of back up with the um, that whole family piece is that if you are seeking addiction treatments, it's primarily residential or what I do, like outpatient, and there is no family component, I probably mm. would not use that because it's so critical that family be involved in this process and we're learning more and more about that about how the family interacts with the person boundaries a lot of the times I just put a blog on my uh, on my website about enabling versus uh, being supportive right, and I've right. come across many a parent who really thought they were being supportive um, specifically you know a woman told me that I give my my daughter hundreds of thousands of dollars and none of it was for treatment Mm. And, you know, she's at the severe stage now, but it was for gas and mm -hmm. rent and 
tuition and to basically get them out of crisis. Yeah. But that whole notion of hitting rock bottom mm -hmm. is, is, is relevant. I was listening to uh, someone else speaking about his son's uh, addiction, and he in the past would have tried to help his son avoid the police, but in this case he called the police. And so he asked his son, who's now clean and sober, um, was that a turning point for you? And he said, well, not not specifically, because I didn't get clean for many years after that, but it was a point where I realized you were serious sure. <laughs> and that you, you know, I couldn't manipulate you anymore. So it played a role in his overall recovery. Yeah, and I hear that a lot. It's my own personal story as well. So tough love really works. And I think that without the, the, the validation and guidance of a professional, it's hard for family to tease out where they, mm -hmm. kind of like where mm -hmm. they stop and the other person begins. And what's and, helpful What's helpful. You know, I versus, love you. What helps you and what's actually harming you. That's right. Yeah. And so guilt and all that plays into it. And my mother in particular, you know, she, I was in jail and I called her and said, I need you to get me out of this and blah, blah, blah. And she said, no, mm. I'm not going to do it. And kind of like what you just said, I could tell that something was different. And so it was different. She didn't yeah. do anything. And, and I it's, sat it's there. It's not yeah. only, um, getting family support for the individual mm -hmm. in treatment, but wouldn't the family need a lot of support oh. to be able to change a lifetime of habits, lifetime of quote-unquote love or enabling, right. and now all of a sudden put your foot down and show some tough love. That family's going to really need some support to do that. For sure. I mean, I do family workshops, and I work with families in my practice, and I'm seeing um, I mean, almost like craving this education that we provide, mm -hmm. the support, mm -hmm. the guidance. It's a, how do I interact with this person with this chronic health condition? And so it's very helpful, even if the, the families are, are doing counseling and therapy separate from the person, just on their own. Or even in another state. I, right. It's like, imagine there's still some manipulation and sending money, wiring money, even if they're not physically present. That's right. Well, and just the, the grief and the sadness. I see uh, parents relationships, marriages deteriorate because of this, the person with the, with the addictive disorder has been so stressful on both of them and their styles don't match about how they interact with the person. So they end up fighting each other. And I've heard families, you know, say to the, to my client, you know, you're, you're destroying our marriage. And it's, it's just a, it's terrible to see obviously, yeah. but they, with, uh, without any added support or professional, um, intervention, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's almost, impossible to yeah. overcome something like that. So a professional assessment is needed to determine even the severity of the um, addiction, uh, what components are going to need to be plugged in, how to work with the family. Um, it's really not a sprint. <laughs> it's a marathon no. and maybe even no. more accurately a, a decathlon <laughs> with lots of hurdles and shot puts and pole vaulting. Uh, it's not an easy road, but there is hope. There's help. There's hope. That's right. Yeah. And I just quickly, treatment works. I mean, mm -hmm. that's the... You know, the, the point is people can recover from this. Families can recover. There's a lot of cutting-edge treatment and help out there um, available, and, and I'm happy to point people in the right direction. And there's a wealth of recovery in uh, Denver, Colorado, um, surrounding areas. So, yeah, it's possible for people to recover. Right. Yeah. And it's it really is um, part of that assessment is figuring out what, what's needed for now. But right. there, there it's, uh, it evolves. Um, it's a long-term process that will need to be reassessed and new things plugged in. Uh, and, Lorraine, it's, it's not just about the professional intervention. It's really a holistic. You earlier mentioned kind of mind, body, spirit. 
and the role of really addressing the whole person. Uh, I know that's um, part of the mission of um, the Raymond Roundtree Jr. Foundation that you founded in memory and honor of your brother, um, dedicated to providing affordable, transitional, sustainable wraparound services to the individual and their family. Um, and you're focusing on a balance between mind, body, soul, mind, body, spirit. Uh, talk about some of the things that you're doing. I know you had a fundraising event the last time you are on the show. So tell us how that went and how you're using the funds and kind of um, what the future is for this organization, what people can benefit from if they reach out to you. Okay, thank you, um, Dr. Peck. So you allowed us to come out um, and uh, actually promote our event. So um, the vision is that every year, um, this would be our second annual in January 2019 on the 20th, where we will do SPIN for Opioid Sensibility. SOS. And, SOS, mm -hmm. yes. And so um, that came to me because, of course, my baby brother at, you know, 44 years old, um, dying, that is an SOS. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel like it had there had been little SOSs in the sense of his addiction in general, and that was kind of the stamp on my heart, if you will. And so I do think it is time for us to just say, oh, that person is not able to do X, Y, and Z, so let's just put them in a box and they have to figure it out on their own. And so through this process, um, the uh, on January the 19th of this year, we did our first um, launch of a fundraiser in partnership with uh, Cy bar in Long Tree and with Cedar um, uh, w which Matt previously worked for and then um, uh, a, a wonderful group of individuals that sponsored us and through that we were able to get 42 people to um, participate and the reason for spin for opioid sensibility is physically taking care of the temple that we have is those natural ways of getting those endorphins going and um, I'm, I'm a proponent of that because I know that I'm high driven mm -hmm. and so for me that's what works and I think that if we all would use the temple that we have in that form along with you know having a spiritual connection and um, having the the mind to um, seek out things that can benefit you long term um, opposed to short term mm -hmm. be it family friends um, giving back is powerful um, those are things that can help you um, make it through this doggy dog world because mm -hmm. it is and and so with that, we were able to raise $10,000. Oh, well, and out of that, we have um, been able to do a 12-week uh, program, an intensive out uh, patient program through CEDAR, mm -hmm. which the scholarships will be available on our website uh, starting on June 1st, uh, where you can actually fill out the application. You'll go through an interview process and then um, be awarded. All of this can be confidential. Um, and uh, we're looking for candidates that have gone through at a minimum six-month program uh, with, you know, a professional counselor or program and, um, you know, have a desire to want to change. Mm -hmm. And that's our goal. And then again, in, through that process is being out like Matthew and I partnering with um, our passion because this is truly a passion for both of us to you know make sure that lives are changed families are healed and um, truly lives are saved and they don't have to go through the pain that we've um, had to go through in losing my brother yes and lost potential you know, right. Yeah. Uh, even if someone doesn't um, have an o overdose and, and die, there's a lost potential. There's all that pain and suffering in the family. And so you have um, scholarships available. Uh, folks can go to sosrrjrfoundation.org to apply. 
Yes, thank you so much. You're so welcome. Well, it's been my pleasure to have Lorraine Hoover and Matthew Jarvis. Thank you both for being on the show with me today. Um, It's such an important issue. We've got to raise awareness, and then we have to have the resources available for people. My guests have been Lorraine Hoover, and I'm Matthew Jarvis. No, I'm not. You're not. (laughs) My guests have been Lorraine Hoover and Matthew Jarvis, and I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark reminding you to live well. Sorry, Matthew. (laughs) We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of Living Well with Dr. Peg. For more information or to contact Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark about her mental health or consulting services, please visit her webpage at drpegradio.com.